the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to another thrill-packed edition of Unite, i.e. Radio, the radio show for the most important political office, that of the private citizen. My name is Greg Britton with the Redlands Tea Party Patriots, and I'm going to be joined by Doug Gibbs of the Constitution Association. We the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, do ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. And uh, for those high school and college graduates out there, that is the preamble, the beginning of the United States Constitution, and which is the longest surviving constitution in the world and produced the longest surviving republic in the world. And at least in its original form before the amendments, it was the shortest constitution in the world. And how much longer will have the constitution, the republic, or the country I think now is in serious doubt. But last week we talked a lot about the new Supreme Court nominee, Kataji Brown-Jackson. And um, I thought, you know, Biden thought she was a woman. That was a, cri- that was a criteria. But, you know, since neither he nor I are biologists, uh, we can't be sure of that. But we don't want to go redo talking about her. But because the Supreme Court is fortunately or unfortunately the ultimate arbiter of the Constitution. And Doug Gibbs is laughing at that idea. But in a, in a, whether that's supposed to be that way or not, that's what, that's what it has become. So we invited Doug Gibbs, who is a, our, an expert. He teaches the Constitution. He has a radio show dedicated to the Constitution. He's written books about the Constitution. He's a, a speaker about the Constitution. So since I had no one else to invite in this week, we invited Doug Gibbs in. Welcome, welcome to the show, yeah. Doug. <laughs> Great to be here. Thanks for having me. So, so I'm, uh, you know, what, uh, number F or G or something on the list there? Q. Oh, Q. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, no, it's great to be here, and I, um, I'm actually on two radio programs now. Uh, I have Constitution Radio on a station right up the road from here out of Beaumont, and then I'm Saturday nights at 9 p.m. down in San Diego County, a Salem station just like this one. Um, Your radio career is, is, is budding. Excellent. Yeah, I'm moving up in the world, and someday I want to be just like you. <laughs> the, the soft bigotry of low expectations. Yeah. <laughs> All right, well... One of the reasons we're going to talk about is, in addition to your constitutional teachings and radio shows, is you were a plaintiff in a lawsuit suing um, uh, uh, what Breitbart called the other day um, Cackley McMoron, but, but uh, Kamala Harris. Mm-hmm. And uh, what, what, ha- what, what did you sue her for and what happened with that case? Well, you know, and it, it's, a, uh, it's still going on. And, you know, when it comes to Kamala Harris, uh, my joke has been I'm not sure who has the better cackle, her or Hillary Clinton. You know, it's a, it's a pretty close competition there. Uh, but what it, what it is, is, and what it is, is almost sound like Bill Clinton, depends on what the definition of his is. Uh, but uh, what the case is about is she uh, was born in Oakland, California, but her parents were students. They were here on student visas. So the first question is, is she a citizen or a natural born citizen? And it's interesting because you talked about, you mentioned judicial review earlier, what it's supposed to be and what it is. And, you know, it's funny because I have a friend of mine whose son just went through law school recently, and the, and the professor actually said, I know there are purists out there who believe this, but I'm going to teach you what is and what you're going to have to encounter in the legal world. And so when it comes to purism, and that's what I'm talking about, and when I say I'm a purist, in other words, I believe in the construction of the Constitution as it was originally intended, and 
sort of uh, Justice Scalia, who spent his career interpreting the Constitution. Well, you know, and Scalia and I agreed on uh, most of the time. Uh, Clarence Thomas uh, is right now my favorite. Uh, Samuel Alito may be right there with him. Uh, but when it comes to citizenship and natural-born citizenship, we have this concept today that's called birthright citizenship. And birthright citizenship, it covers both citizenship and natural-born citizen. If you're born on American soil and you're naturally born on American soil, you're both. That's the belief. If you're born on American soil, you're automatically a citizen. Well, let's, let's just stop. Is, why, is, why is, quote, natural-born citizen, unquote, important? Well, the founding fathers at the time, there was a concern. We had just fought a revolution against the British Empire. British Empire is still the enemy. And about a third of the population, and you've probably covered this on the show before, about a third of the population supported the move for independence. About a third were ambiguous about it. They didn't care as long as they still run their farm and don't care who's in charge. And then about a third were Tories. These were loyalists to the crown. Now, Tories tended to have one parent that was still a citizen of Britain or was born in Britain on, on the motherland. And so there was a concern about divided allegiances. And so if you're going to have a commander-in-chief, you don't want that commander-in-chief to have divided loyalties. You don't want that commander-in-chief to you know, have a parent that has loyalties to Britain, and they might make decisions as commander-in-chief that might not be good for the country. So this idea of natural-born citizen was one of the uh, – Tactics they decided to use when it came to the eligibility of president, and that was the that's the only office that has that requirement of president being a and vice president and vice president mm-hmm. being a natural born citizen. Well, see, originally uh, to become a president, the election was the first place winner was president, second place winner was vice president. So to be vice president, you were also needed to be a natural born citizen because you're running for president. In the Twelfth Amendment, they changed how the elections were, and there would be separate ballots, one for the president, one for the vice president. So the last sentence of the 12th Amendment says that the vice president must meet the same eligibility requirements as the president, natural-born citizen. Now, in the uh, Constitution, Article 2, where we find the natural-born uh, citizenship clause, and, it, you know, I, I'm, it's very interesting because when you talk about this clause, remember I said with birthright citizenship, this this current belief, there's no difference between citizen and natural-born citizen. Naturally born in American soil, it covers both. That's the attitude. That's the idea. So first of all, the Constitution tells us, no, they're two different things. So reading the clause in Article 2, Section 1, says no person except a natural-born citizen or a citizen of the United States at the time of the adoption of this Constitution shall be eligible to the office of president. Okay, so right there, natural-born citizen or a citizen. So they're two different things. Why did they add that caveat? Well, if the natural-born citizen, based on the definition I'm getting ready to give you, which is that both parents were uh, citizens at the time of the birth of the child, if that is the definition of natural-born citizen, well, the oldest natural-born citizen in the United States at the time was 11 years old because 1776, right? So nobody's eligible yet. As a natural-born citizen, so they added that caveat, or a citizen of the United States at the time of the adoption of the Constitution. The first natural-born citizen, I want to say, uh, uh, it, was, uh, it wasn't Jackson, it was, uh, uh, I think it was one of the presidents after Jackson, I don't remember the exact which, who was the first natural-born citizen president, but nonetheless, so that clause right there tells us, first of all, there's a difference. Natural-born citizen, citizen, two different things. So now, what's the difference? A citizen, you know, and, and I mean, I you can you can become legally a citizen just through naturalization. That's a citizen by law, naturalized. My wife naturalized two thousand seven. I was born here to citizen parents. I was born on the soil. My parents had allegiance here. I grew up under the jurisdiction of this country. I was born under the jurisdiction. I'm a citizen. My children were born here in the United States. Parents were under the jurisdiction, they're citizens. However, their mother was not a citizen yet. My wife didn't naturalize till 2007. So when my children were born, while they are citizens, and I'm sure they are completely disappointed about this, they cannot run for president because they only had one citizen parent at the time of their birth. Now, why? How? But, but, but of course, it doesn't say anywhere natural born citizen means 
to means two U.S. citizen parents. Well, that's where it gets interesting. It does, but we'll get to that. All right. Well, let's address that. Let's say I, I'm a writer. I've written eight books. And let's say I decide to write a book about restaurants. And in the book, I talk about, in my book, I write about fast food restaurants and how fast food is popular among certain groups of people and so on and so forth. And then lo and behold, 200 years later or 230 years later or whatever, more than a couple centuries pass and some archaeologist finds a copy of my book. And he's going through it. He's like, wow, this is great. It's over 200 years old. You know, this is a relic from the past. We can learn about the past from this book. And he comes across the term fast food. And he thinks to himself, because languages change. The average thing that the average person understands without a definition, and I'm not going to put a definition in my book. Everybody knows what fast food is. And he's looking at it. He says, well, why is it fast? Did they have to chase it? He doesn't know. It's the antelope. Yeah, yeah, yeah. fast food is an antelope. He doesn't know. He's basing it on his current understanding. So if he wants to really know what I meant when I wrote it, he's going to have to go back to the resources I used. Now, I'm, I'm going to assume Wikipedia is not going to be around anymore. So he's going to probably have to find dictionaries or something like that that shows what fast food means. He's going to go through these resources. He might find other books that uses fast food in, its, in the language of the book and through the context, he might also be able to determine what fast food means. So he, so it's kind of like being a detective. He has to find all these clues and put them together to determine what was meant by that term, fast food. Okay, so now we've got this book, and it's 234 years old. And there's a term in there, and we think we know what it means, but what did they mean? Well, we're going to have to find out. They didn't define it, so we have to go to the resources. Okay, and there's no, as I understand, there are no writings of any of the founders saying, here's what we mean by it. Actually, absolutely, there is. Okay. Okay. So, first of all, we also want to talk about the etymology of that term. There was something called a natural-born subject in Britain. You, know, they weren't, the, the, you weren't a citizen unless you were nobility. You were a subject otherwise. This is a wonderful thing about America, by the way is here we're not subjects. If you're a subject, you serve the government. When you're a citizen, the government serves you. It's a wonderful thing about being a citizen. Theoretically. Theoretically, yeah. <laughs> yeah, my, 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 how things have changed. We could talk about that later. Uh, or as I like to say, the salsa recipe is all messed up. Uh, I, I, I compare the Constitution to a salsa recipe. If you decide, you know what, in the salsa recipe, I'm going to put parsley instead of cilantro. It probably is not going to taste very good. That's, what ha- what, that's what's happened to our Constitution. We're not following the original recipe, and things aren't quite tasting exactly right. But anyway, get back to the topic here. So, so we're talking about natural-born citizen and figuring out, okay, so wh- where's the writings? What does it mean? So natural-born subject, which is comes from Britain, and it had to do with... Uh, had to do with uh, estates, uh, you know, inheritance and all of that. And typically, the inheritance would go through the father. That is typically was English law. And, and you know, we were English colonies, so we're following English law. That's where our law got its beginning was English law. Even today, everybody reads Blackstone and, and so on and so forth. But so we go back to, to the term natural-born subject. What did it mean? It meant to citizens you know, were your parents, so that made you able to inherit and all of that. Then we go back to the Greek writings, and Greeks also, they, they, they actually use the term native citizen, not natural born, but it was also two parents being citizens in order to be a, a citizen that could hold office and do certain things in Greek, in Greece. So there's kind of the beginnings of this. And then when we uh, read some of the letters, and you, John Jay uh, wrote about natural-born citizen a lot, and while he didn't define it, he, first of all, he never did define it in his writings, he refers to natural-born citizen a lot. We need to make sure that our that natural-born citizens are the only commander-in-chief presence. He writes that in his writings, so it's an important thing, and he is treating it as something different than citizen. Then we've got this guy who wrote a reference named Vitell. And Vittel wrote this Vittel's Law of Nations. I have a copy of it. I have the 1797 uh, version of it. He originally wrote it in 1758, and it was in French. In 1760, 17- there you go. 1760, the English version came out. 
The reason why there was a 1797 version, which is 10 years after the Constitution, is because they realized some of the translations in the 1760 version weren't exactly right. So they had to update them and correct them. Now, in Vattel's Law of Nations, if you read it... Let me me stop you here. We need to take a break and... Maybe we need to get out of, we come back, we'll to get, maybe get out of the, uh, seven, the 18th century books and how this applies to the case that you were in. So we also have other constitutional issues we want to uh, talk about on the show. After this word from Ed Hoffman of Planet Home Lending, the place to go for your real estate lending needs. Back after this. Hi, this is Ed Hoffman, branch manager of Planet Home Lending and host of the main event, Heard Weekends, right here on AM590 The Answer. If you'd like to own a home and you need financing, or you'd like to refinance a home you already own, whether that's in California or one of these escape from California states, Arizona, Nevada, Utah, Colorado, Texas, Arkansas, Tennessee, Georgia, Florida, Ohio, Oregon, Washington, Idaho, or Montana, I'm the guy you want to talk to. Or if you'd like to inquire into one of the most liberating financing tools for seniors, a reverse mortgage, you want to talk to someone who will guide you towards decisions based on your best interest, not theirs. Call me toll-free at 855-640-2020. That's 855-640-2020. Or go to edhoffman.net and click on the Planet Home Lending logo. My team and I will lead you to the best decision for you based on your short-term and your long-term goals. Again, for more information, call me at 855-640-2020 or go to edhoffman.net and click on the Planet Home Lending logo. AM 590, the answer. Welcome back to Unite IE Radio, the radio show for the most important political office, that of the private citizen. My name is Greg Britton, and I'm joined this week by Doug Gibbs, a uh, well-noted constitutional expert in the Inland Empire, teaches the Constitution, has radio shows on the Constitution, has books on the Constitution. I think he has a T-shirt he's selling on the Constitution. If not, he probably soon soon will. Um, And we were trying to figure out what the... uh, Natural born citizen, which is one of the qualifications to be president, means because it relates to the lawsuit he filed against uh, Kamala Harris. And he assures me he only has 30 seconds more to go into the, uh, the, the 1700s and the book of the law, the law of nations. Well, well, the Law of Nations by Vattel basically says that both parents need to be citizens at the time of birth in order to be a natural born citizen. And folks say, well, yeah, but why is that? important. Why, why can you use that as a resource? Was it something the founders were using? Absolutely. There were three copies of it on the floor at the Constitutional Convention. George Washington brought one copy. Franklin brought two copies. But the reason why he brought two copies, he brought the French and the English version. So if there was confusion about the translation, guess what? Most of them could speak and read French, too. So the French version was just as good. So that is the definition of natural-born citizen, both parents being citizens at the time of the birth. So now we go back to our good friend, Kamala Harris, when she she was born in Oakland on American soil, but both parents were not citizens. They were here on student visas. One was actually a professor on a student visa. The other one was a student. Now, the mother was a student, and, the, and her father from Jamaica uh, was actually doing some professorial type of work. And so... She's be honest with you, she's an anchor baby. Matter of fact, she's less than an anchor baby. At least when with the uh, illegal aliens, they plan to at least stay here a while. On a student visa, they weren't planning on staying here a while at the time. Uh, they had, in the case of her father, he changed his mind. He stayed a while, but that's beside the point. So she's not eligible now. So she's vice presidential pre, vice presidential candidate, and we're having a meeting, Constitutional Association, and and it's get gets brought up in our meeting. She's not eligible. And so one of the members of our board, his name is Dennis Jackson and a good friend of all of ours, and he says, well, then we need to sue her. And the treasurer, his name is George, and myself say, what do you mean? He says, well, she's ineligible. We need to sue her. I mean, if if we don't, what do we exist for? Constitution Association. Isn't, aren't we all about getting back Constitution? So shouldn't we not address such an issue in the courts? George has a law degree. He also has a doctorate in finance, and he's a CPA. And as a person with a law degree, interestingly, he never did get his bar number, though, because I, I kid you not, he'll tell you. They wouldn't let him take the bar because he took his classes out of order. Hmm. Talk about procedural nuts here, but you know that's beside the point, because you know I love the legal industry. <clears throat> but anyway, so we decide we're going to file. But the problem is, 
we can file pro per as individuals, but if the organization is also going to be in the lawsuit, it needs representation. It needs a lawyer with a bar number. And so we shopped lawyers. None of them want to be a part of it because, well, you know, that's just another birther thing. Shied away from it. So we decided to file anyway, and we actually did include the Constitutional Association originally because uh, our treasurer has so many, so much alphabet soup after his name, they might not even notice, and they didn't. And then within weeks, we had we did find a lawyer, so it worked out okay in the long run. And uh, he's a semi-retired lawyer. He's pretty much said, you guys do all the work. Uh, I'm just, you know, you're, you're basically just having me be a part of it because I'm excited about this. Hey, if I'm going to go out, let's go out with a bang. But, you know, you guys do the work. And so we have. So that so so now we sue her. It actually didn't get filed, even though they're in summer of 2020 is when we we're talking about it. It didn't get filed till December 7th, 2020. A year passes. We filed with the Southern District Court, federal court. And, and we're thinking, wow, we're fortunate because the judge we get is a Trump appointee. Wow, we're in good shape. After a year of going back and forth, Kamala Harris never responded. No lawyer on her behalf responded. Default. Now, typically in a default, that means you lose, right, Mr. Lawyer? Well, if, if you are if you're the defaulter party, yes. Typically. So the court acknowledges she's in default, but will not provide, give us a default judgment. It's really weird. And then after a year... And after the U.S. attorney responds to the case, not on her behalf, but on the U.S. government's behalf, and we say, well, the U.S. government is doesn't have standing here, first of all, because they answered on the government's behalf, not hers, number one. And number two, we sued her as an individual, as a candidate, not as a member of the Senate or something like that. Mm-hmm. And then after a year, it's dismissed on what's called jurisdiction. Now, let me explain what they mean by that. They're saying, well... See, Congress has the authority to determine the eligibility of the president and vice president, and we can't pit the courts and the you know Congress against each other, separation of powers. And so there's a jurisdiction issue here that the courts don't have jurisdiction to even have this case, so it's dismissed. Well, the funny thing about that, getting back to the— Well, there were a whole, there were a whole series of cases, I don't know how many there were, that were brought challenging Obama's oh, elig- yeah. eligibility— Standing was and jurisdiction were usually the top two. They never, they were never decided on the merits. They were always dismissed on standing or maybe jurisdiction. Mm-hmm. Never got to the merits. Right. Ne- never even got to do any discovery. Right. And we're, and we're so and when we filed, by the way, because uh, we have some friends that are in the system and all that. There were eleven cases directly related to the Constitution at the time. We're the only case left standing of those original eleven cases. Okay. So anyway, we appealed the dismissal to the Ninth Circuit. The Ninth Circuit accepted our appeal. Here's our argument. In Article 1, Section 5, it says, of the Constitution, it says, each house shall be the judge of the elections, returns, and qualifications of its own members. All right, so in the Constitution, Congress has the authority to determine the qualifications of its own members. But guess what? President and vice president is never mentioned in the Constitution. There's no authority on who has that, who determines the eligibility. And as I like to tell my classes, if it's not in the Constitution, that means it is. Tenth Amendment. So in other words, if it's not given to the federal government as an authority, it's not prohibited to the states, then that means it's left to the people. Well, I'm sorry, to the reserve of the states or to the people, meaning that there's the, the people in the states have that authority. Well, the states, they didn't live up to their end of the bargain. They didn't determine the eligibility. The Secretary of State let her on all the ballots. All of them did. So they didn't do their job. So the people are through this lawsuit. So that's our one of our responses to the jurisdiction issue. Uh, so we filed our... You only about 30 seconds here. We, 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 we filed our appeal. They... Filed an extension. They responded last Monday. I wish you luck. I, th- I sus- if I had to bet, I think you're, you're, this case will suffer the same fate as all of the Obama cases. They're just not going to rule the per- the person that holds that office is ineligible. I'm hoping to get it to the court of public opinion. That's why I talk about it on things like radio shows. I think the court of public opinion is more important than that court. 
Stay tuned for the exciting second half of Unite IE Radio. We're going to dive into other interesting constitutional issues, at least issues we think are interesting. Back after this. Hi, this is Ed Hoffman, branch manager of Planet Home Lending and host of the main event. Heard weekends right here on AM590 The Answer. If you'd like to own a home and you need financing, or you'd like to refinance a home you already own, whether that's in California or one of these escape from California states, Arizona, Nevada, Utah, Colorado, Texas, Arkansas, Tennessee, Georgia, Florida, Ohio, Oregon, Washington, Idaho, or Montana, I'm the guy you want to talk to. Or if you'd like to inquire into the, one of the most liberating financing tools for seniors, a reverse mortgage, you want to talk to someone who will guide you towards decisions based on your best interest, not theirs. Call me toll-free at 855-640-2020. That's 855-640-2020. Or go to edhoffman.net and click on the Planet Home Lending logo. My team and I will lead you to the best decision for you based on your short-term and your long-term goals. Again, for more information, call me at 855-640-2020 or go to edhoffman.net and click on the Planet Home Lending logo. AM 590, the answer. Welcome back to Unite IE Radio, the radio show for the most important political office, that of the constitutional scholar. And uh, we, ha- we, 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 ha- we have one, at least, we, at least he claims to be one. Doug Gibbs is, our, is, 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 the, is, is my guest this week. And um, he teaches the Constitution. He has a radio show, two radio shows dedicated to the Constitution. He's written books on the Constitution. Uh, so I think he qualifies as a constitutional expert, even though sometimes I think he's wrong. Eh, I don't know if I use the word expert. Ex is a has-been, spurts a drip, but I'll go with it. Okay. <laughs> uh, we spent most. We spent most of our first half talking about uh, his lawsuit against uh, Kamala Harris, challenging her eligibility. Yeah. By the and, way, if, if folks want to read the original complaint, they can go to constitutionassociation.com. It's available. That's a good point. So if you want to connect with Doug, constitutionassociation.com. Yep. Okay. I don't want to belabor this at, at really at length. We want to move on to some other sure. issues. Absolutely. But I would just I I think it's not as clear as you say it is. I think that it's it's ambiguous and if it's ever got to the Supreme Court. And I know we have a difference on whether the Supreme Court should be making these decisions, but if it ever got there, I think the result is uncertain. I know uh, when Ted Cruz ran in 2016, there were questions raised about his eligibility. He assured us that, well, no, it just, it just means citizen at birth, which is something I, I don't agree with. I do agree. It is, I think it is clear enough that the founders intended natural born citizen to be, they want that special loyalty to uh, the constitution. That but, is clear. Yes. Yeah, but, but whether it requires born in the country, one citizen, uh, I think that, I think that, I think that is, uh, is less clear. Um, we're going to, sh- we're going to, let's, let's shift to another, it's actually, it's a timely issue. Okay. And that is the, uh, the Democrats have done everything they could and they may still may try to find some way to get it through. If not this session of Congress in a future session, uh, their federal election law, which would basically, in, which, which would, in, which would in effect, uh, mandate permanent fraudulent rigged elections everywhere in the country. No voter ID, no expunging of old names from the voter rolls, long list of things, everything they could possibly think of to steal, to steal the elections. And among their authority, there was a saying, well, it's unconstitutional, you can't do that. Well, there's a, there's a couple of things in the Constitution on which they might actually say, well, here's some words in the Constitution that might support our position. Article 1, Section 4. This is talking about what Congress can do. And Article 1, Section 4 says, The times, places, and manner of holding elections for senators and representatives shall be prescribed by, in each state by the legislature thereof, but the Congress may at any time by law make or alter such regulations except as to the place of choosing senators. Of course, that was just a little funny to begin with because at the time, the selection of senators was up to the state legislature, they did not have direct election of senators until the early 1900s with it was, was the 18th, 19th, 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 19th amendment. And the suggestion would be then that Congress could not even propose that amendment since Congress is not supposed to be messing around with the places of Jesus senators. So that's another discussion right. for another time. The other potential way they could go would be in the 15th amendment, which, uh, which guarantees the right of, uh, to vote. 
and it can't be abridged on the basis of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. And in Section 2 says Congress shall have the power to enforce this article by appropriate legislation. They say, wow, the, 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 all, these, all these voting laws the states have passed to ensure election integrity are really discriminating against black people or other minorities, and therefore, under the 15th Amendment, we have the authority to do this. In fact, I even read an article in which, so it, actually, you know, law professors were, you know, for whatever that's worth, not much, certainly less these days, as Doug rolls his eyes, <laughs> argued that under the, under the 15th Amendment, that section, Section 2, is they can get, Congress can get rid of two senators per state because that discriminates against black people. <laughs> That glass. That's a reach. Okay. But we'll so, talk about so, that some other time. Okay. So, but, so let's, uh, but that's, so I, let's I, talk I, about these new laws. Let's talk about, so, the, so, let, so let's say that the Democrats somehow managed to get their national vote fraud law passed. Mm-hmm. Is it, never mind whether it's good law, is it constitutional? Yes and no. A portion of it is. What you'll notice in Article 1, Section 4, and you read it, it says the times, places, and manner of holding elections for senators and representatives. So what it's saying is the federal elections for representatives and senators, Congress may make law to alter such regulations. But notice that presidential elections not mentioned there. In or state fact, elections. Or state elections. Well, well, state elections belong to the states anyway, but that's beside the point. Let, we're, we're, let's focus on the presidential election because the whole reason for their laws that they're trying to put forth right now is they want to make sure a Trump never happens again. They are zeroing in really on the presidential election. Yes, they're trying to monkey with senators. And they want the fraud to go on forever for all federal positions. I get that. But I want to key in on the presidential part of the election. There is nothing in that clause that says that Congress can write law regarding the presidential election. Then you read the whole Constitution, and guess what? There is no authority for Congress to make any law whatsoever regarding the presidential election. Period. It's not in there. And one would ask, well, gosh, Doug, then what happens? Well, it goes back to what I was talking about earlier with the 10th Amendment. If it's not in there, it's in there. Then that means it's up to the states. The state. In fact, the Constitution has expressly gives the states the ability to choose how they select their presidential electors. Right. And and that's important because right now, what was really intended for the was for the legislatures to be choosing those electors. And the way they did it, just to give you a little history, is the number of electors is based on the number of representatives and senators you have, correct? Correct. So in the beginning, what they would do early on, this is a little bit of a history lesson here, is the number of 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 electors based on the number of members of the House were based on recommendations by the people. The people would hold their conventions or have a vote to offer their op- who they wanted to be that elector in the different districts or areas. Then, the, then two of them would be chosen by the legislature without the people's voice. So that way there was a mixture. And that's good. We want a mixture. Two heads are better than one. That doesn't mean two of the exact same head. You want different ways of looking at things. So that's the way they did it. Now, question is, if the legislatures choose how the electors are chosen, the electors choose the president, then where does it, how, how is it that Congress could be making law changing anything when there's no mention of that? It isn't. So that portion of their law that tries to administer the presidential election is unconstitutional. Any law also tries to administer state elections technically would also be unlawful because there's nothing the Constitution. Now, I know 14th Amendment we and 15th Amendment, we can get into those discussions, but technically, from my understanding and my reading, there really is anything that gives the federal government the ability to dictate to the states how they run their elections, and except for the senator and representative election. Now, that said, there are certain caveats to elections that can be dictated to, such as 15th Amendment. You can't uh, adjust your elections to, to be, you know, um, detrimental to the ability of uh, someone of color to vote. Uh, you've got the 19th Amendment when it comes to the female vote. And, of course, you've got the age, which was already in the Constitution anyway. That is something that the federal government can determine. 21 was original. Then you got 26th Amendment, which changed it to 18. So there are some caveats. But to say because they can do those things, they can do all of it, that to me, that's a stretch because I believe in what's called the enumeration doctrine. It needs to be expressly enumerated. And just because... I have authority over A and B doesn't mean I have authority over C is kind of my argument. 
Well, potentially, then there might, you may have, if they're saying, for example, you can't use voter ID. There may be d- different elections. So you're, you're running an election and you can't vote for president or state offices without a voter ID, photo ID, but you can vote for, your, for House and Senate. Without one, right? Potentially, you would have even separate separate voter rolls. Here's the here's the fraud laden voter roll that's mandated for House and Senate, and here's the other voter roll that's for President and state offices. Potentially, that's possible. And if you read the Constitution, uniformity is not always the key and or the case. But uh, it just uh, just like with state sovereignty, you know, say uh, an issue that doesn't appear in the Constitution, that the states would make a decision. And they might, one state might allow something that another state doesn't, such as maybe, uh, you know, reproductive rights or something like that. That um, I, I use that term not because it's my term, it's theirs, but, you know, nonetheless. But, you know, that's something that really is supposed to be up to each state. So it says, well, gosh, that means that someone just go to another state. Yeah, that's, the states are supposed to be different. Related issue to uh, election integrity. There are the Election Integrity Project and some of our local candidates, including uh, Mark Car- Mike Cargyle and others, have brought a lawsuit against California saying this thing is so hopelessly rigged with, um, with fraud mm-hmm. that it rises to the level of being unconstitutional. It was dismissed. And it's, it's on appeal. I think uh, it's likely to get uh, dismissed there as well. Yeah. Is how, there, well, how do you win when the referees, when in this case the judges, are rooting for the other team? Is there some level of vote fraud and rigged elections that makes the system become unconstitutional? Well, first of all, uh, when it comes to the Constitution, it's interesting because, for example, the presidential elections. Um, and, and I'm going to get into a case in a minute, but let's say presidential elections. You know, originally the people didn't even vote for president. It was only the electors. The people campaigned for their candidate to convince their elector to vote for who they wanted them to. But the people didn't start voting for president until the 1820s, and that was Andrew Jackson that pushed that because he believed that we need to be more of a democracy instead of a republic. We're not designed to be a democracy. But if you want to get into a legal deal here, Let's go to the Throckmorton case. And I wish I could remember the year of it, but the Throckmorton case in the 1870s, 1880s. And there's a statement in that case. It actually doesn't have anything to do with elections, but in the uh, opinion, judicial opinion, it says something very interesting. Fraud vitiates everything. Well, if fraud vitiates everything and fraud is determined to have existed, then what does that do? It spoils the entire election, and that means every one of those offices that were achieved due to that fraud then should be empty seats because, as according to Throckmorton case, fraud vitiates everything. Okay, but they're looking forward. They're not not trying to undo the prior election. They're saying that these laws that that allow this Yeah, it'll just make the fraud legal. are are unconstitutional, and they want the court to, in essence, rewrite California election law, and I, don't think, I am highly confident. I, I don't like the courts that, doing no, that. But that's what, but that, but that's what they're asking. Yeah. For. But versus, I mean, let's let's take it even more extreme. Is let's suppose all the votes are going to be counted by machines supplied by and uh, staffed by and programmed by representatives of the California Democrat Party. Mm-hmm. And lo and behold, they just win every election. So let's just let's let's take let's, and there's no there are no voter rolls. Anybody who shows up at a polling place can vote any number of times. So you just you show up. You don't even ask your name. You just walk in. I want to vote. Here's a ballot. You mm-hmm. Walk in. Has a ballot. And you can and you could walk vote. Walk back out. Come back in and and do this endlessly all day long. So let's take a really really extreme. Does is is that going to rise to the level of being unconstitutional? Not necessarily, because the states can make their decisions, and the federal government can alter such regulations. So then, what does that mean? If that, if you can't, if, if the language in the document is not going to help you out here, then what do you do? How, how do you approach such a thing? Well, that goes back to the very opening that a citizen is the most important political office in this country. In other words, that means we got to do something about it. That means that this is not acceptable, and even the Constitution can't stop that fraud. We know it's fraud. We feel it's fraud. There's nothing constitutional that says, oh, well, the states can't do that. About the only thing that that we have about uh, in the Constitution regarding limiting uh, when it comes to actions on elections, we've got the 15th Amendment, 19th Amendment, 26th Amendment, which we already talked about, and the 24th Amendment that doesn't allow poll taxes. But aside from that, the states can do what they want, and if the federal government is hip with it or if the federal government 
alters it to be ridiculous. It doesn't say, well, you can only do laws that say this, this, and this. It doesn't do that, does it? So, yeah, technically, yeah. How about, they could. How about Article 4, Section 4? The, the, the United States will guarantee to every state of the union a Republican form of government. Well, see, if, the if, problem if, is, if you have, you're, you're if right. You, if you have rigged elections... Mm-hmm. Well, you're you're right, and that's and, and that's a clause I want I was wanting to go to later on, but let's let's talk about that. So if that here's the problem, that clause was already violated. Nineteen sixty four, it was violated. Reynolds v. Sims. Are you familiar with Reynolds v. Sims? Not by name. What did what did it do? Well, what Reynolds v. Sims did, and and the, uh, I want to really help the audience here understand what's the difference between a Republican form of government and demo- democracy. Because, see, we've been told that a Republican form of government and democracy is exactly the same thing. And so based on that definition, that's the reason why we can't stop them. But the problem is a republic isn't a democracy. A republic may have some democratic principles in it, but a republic has checks and balances and multiple constituencies and things like that that apply. And one of the things that the states did after the federal system was created is they modeled their state systems after it. So now let's go back and look at our federal system. House of Representatives democratically voted in by the people based on districts. It's never changed. U.S. Senate originally, as we mentioned earlier, were appointed by the state legislatures. They represented the states, the state legislature, not the people. And that's good. Two heads are better than one. You want different ways of looking at the lawmaking process. So that's a good thing. All right. So you got the 17th Amendment, though it has since changed that. But, but also in the Senate, it's not just that the senators represented the state legislatures, but it's two per state. It does has nothing to do with population. So when the states created their systems, they followed that model. So the the uh, state house of representatives or state state assembly, depending on what state you, because different states call it different things, democratically elected by the people, just as it is today. But the state senate was modeled after the U.S. Senate, so they were one per county. And they were appointed by the county legislature, which actually was bicameral back then, which is also very interesting. So now, just real quick question. If in California, it was one senator per county, do you think the state Senate would look a little different? Um, quite. Quite a bit. It'd be a, it would be so red that Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer would be jealous, okay? Well, it wouldn't be that. If you look, if you look at how the counties voted for president, for example, I'm not sure that well, it would well, be, uh, be, be quite that. Uh, let's ta- let's uh, take into Tennessee. account the, also the fraud and all that, but that's beside the point. All right, and, and so now, if we now that's Reynolds v. Sims. Reynolds v. Sims, Alabama was sued for doing it the old way, one per county, state legis- uh, or county legislatures appointing the state senator. They were sued. Warren Court says, well, it's not very democratic. And so they were required to change their Senate to be the, no different than how their assembly or state house is. Democratically vote in with districts that are determined based on the gerrymandering that they come up with. And right. all the states had to follow suit. Well, these were cases that required the districts be of a, a, close to the same population. Right. So you, you, you couldn't reapportion and say, well, I got 10 guys in this district. That's one senator. 10 guys in the next district. And there's another senator. Well, that was the argument. Gosh, why is one county that has... 200 citizens, you know, just as strong as L.A. County, which has millions, because the founding fathers recognized and they and it's written about that tyranny rises out of population centers. The rural areas needed to have a stronger voice. And that was the purpose of the state senates and the U.S. Senate to make sure the rural states had a big enough voice to stop tyranny that might rise out of the population centers so that the heavily populated states and cities would not control everything. The um, difference between a county and a and a state is a, the state the states are set and they can't be changed their tower, their borders can't be changed without the consent of the state. Counties are creations of the states, right? And and the state could say, well, okay, we're going to change this county, we're going to split this county. That's the the counties are crea- right. are creations of the state. So there therein perhaps lies a difference compared to the the U.S. Senate and the U.S. states because the Congress, at least at this point, cannot say we're, we're abolishing and we're going to merge North and South Dakota. Yeah. Well, well, and and the thing is, what's interesting about that is that would though be very noticeable if they're starting to change county lines, but gerrymandering for some reason isn't. 
It's been around as long as uh, since, well, since, since ever since, since Elbridge Gary. Ever since Elbridge since <laughs> since, 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 since since Governor Gary. Yeah, who, who, whose district looked like a salamander? Salamander, so they called it gerrymandering. All right, um, let's, take, let's take a brief pause here. If you might be interested in helping to support the second half of our show, send an email to unite ie radio at protonmail dot com. Unite ie radio uh, at protonmail dot com, and we'll be happy to uh, talk further about that. Let's shift gears to a yet another constitutional topic, and this one is uh, maybe less, less well explored than some of the others we've delved into, and we could go on all, you know, the, what the First Amendment means and big dem tech censorship and so on. Yeah, yeah. you need a three-hour show if you're going to have me not. I think so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Doug's one of these guests, you can ask him a question, and I go get a cup of coffee. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> um, now, the federal government tried to, uh, through OSHA, impose a COVID vax mandate, and the U.S. Supreme Court knocked that down, saying not that it was, un- it was unconstitutional, but that OSHA, the federal agency, did not have the authority to do that. But I think they also said, as well, if the states want to do it, they seem to say that, yes, the, the states could do it. So... California, there was a the bill nineteen ninety three. It was it's been held up. It didn't get advanced, but it could always come back. Would have required all employees and independent contractors in California to be vaxxed. Okay, is would a state law requiring vaccination? And we, never mind COVID. Would any state law requiring vaccination be constitutional? Absolutely not. And now we get to go back to our Fourteenth Amendment. Fourteenth Amendment, uh, like the like the Fifth Amendment. Fifth Amendment applies to federal government. Fourteenth Amendment applies to state. They say the same thing. So both federal and state. Uh, it says that no person shall be deprived. I don't think the I don't think Fifth Amendment has a yeah uh, yeah it has a, a due process type clause also. It says that no person shall be deprived of their life, liberty, or property without due process. So that's the Fifth Amendment protection. Yes, it has the due process. It doesn't have the I'm talking about the due process. I'm talking about the due process clause here. No person shall be deprived of their life, liberty, or property without due process. Okay, so your life, that's pretty obvious. You you can't be killed without, you know, uh, I guess executed wouldn't be the right word. uh, But uh, in California, they decided to do away with all of that. But... But you you know you have to go through due process right you have to be convicted you can't they can't decide you know what you're just a problem you're gone uh, that's illegal right don't give them any ideas <laughs> life liberty or property okay property you're not supposed to seize property without due process or it has to be you have to have gone through that process of due process you know you've been charged been convicted all that jazz. Unless, of course, you're walking around with $10,000 in cash, and then they'll just... Yeah, well, let's not get into that one. I, yeah, we, That's a conversation right there Yeah, you and I can have some real fun with. But uh, so now let's go to the one in the middle, liberty. So what is liberty? You're not supposed to lose your liberty without due process. What is liberty? What it is your freedom to do what? Make your own decisions on your personal individualistic things. The question is, at what point does your liberty crossover from something that's individual to something that's a part of the community and now the community's in danger so that that's the arguments in the courts yeah it's really a question of individualism versus collectivism well the states the states have always been held to have broad powers to police the health welfare right. of their citizens and the 1905 uh, case that you I'm sure you've brought up a number of times uh, with the Massachusetts um, for Jacobson some, versus Jacobson Massachusetts, versus Massachusetts. Uh, John Marshall Harlan, you know, that that's a... Uphel- and when we're talking about is a case that upheld mandatory vaccination. I forget what the vaccination was. It was, was. smallpox. Smallpox. Yeah. And, uh, and imposed a whopping $5 fine, which is, I mean, $5... Was, was it 5 was, or 10 I thought it was $10, uh, but whatever. It was, it was, it was still that, a lot of money back then. Yeah, it was more, it was more money in 1905, but still not... It, it, they, yeah. they weren't locking you so, up over So it. the question is, do you have the right to refuse such a thing? Do you have, do you have the authority at, with your liberty to say no... Or can they take away that liberty for you to say no without due process? Where in the Constitution does it say the state can't do that? 14th Amendment. No uh, state shall. Without, without due process. Well, the due process was the state. The, the, duly, You're not supposed to, the duly elected state legislature has passed a law. Right, but they pass all sorts is, of other laws. It doesn't matter what the law is. That law do. cannot be passed if it takes away your liberty without due process. Well, what, what more due process could you have? Than the, than the legislature passing that restriction. There's no there's no other substantive restriction in the Constitution that says you can't the state can't do that. Okay, and then the other question it's is only this. due process. All right, so now here's the other question. 
is a mandate of law. Okay, we're now we're hypothetical. We're talking about a law, AB, okay. AB 1993. So, so, so at the moment, right now, law the says, mandates are the law, no good. The law, the law says, well, clear what a mandate is. I mean what that means. We're, now we're talking about, we have one minute left, a law passed, duly passed by the California legislature. We don't think much of the legislature. Um, we may not like the law, but is there anything substantive in the Constitution that says the legislature can't pass that law if it thinks that that's what's necessary and useful to protect the health of the citizens of the state? No state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. Okay, what is, what is, they're what are, they're what passing a law that's depriving you of that choice. They, they deprive this, the law deprive you of choices all the time. Uh, well, exactly. But now the question is: the question is, is that a liberty issue? So, like for example, I, I disagree with seatbelt laws, not because I disagree with seatbelts. I don't think they should be telling me that. That's my choice. Okay, but but we're out I of do time. wear seatbelt. We, no we, we are out of time. So, what is that? What is, if the state passes that law, is that they violated the Fourteenth Amendment, in my opinion? Okay. Uh, we will have to leave it at there. We, we, we'll have you back, and maybe we'll get into a, yeah. a, another amendment um, in, 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 in hours two and three of uh, the Constitution with Doug Gibbs. Uh, thanks for keeping me on the show, Doug, and tune in next week My for pleasure. another exciting edition of Unite, i.e. Radio. Hi, this is Ed Hoffman, branch manager of Planet Home Lending and host of the main event, Heard Weekends, right here on AM590, The Answer. If you'd like to own a home and you need financing, or you'd like to refinance a home you already own, whether that's in California or one of these escape from California states, Arizona, Nevada, Utah, Colorado, Texas, Arkansas, Tennessee, Georgia, Florida, Ohio, Oregon, Washington, Idaho, or Montana, I'm the guy you want to talk to. Or if you'd like to inquire into the one of the most liberating financing tools for seniors, a reverse mortgage, you want to talk to someone who will guide you towards decisions based on your best interest, not theirs. Call me toll-free at 855-640-2020. That's 855-640-2020. Or go to edhoffman.net and click on the Planet Home Lending logo. My team and I will lead you to the best decision for you based on your short-term and your long-term goals. Again, for more information, call me at 855-640-2020 or go to edhoffman.net and click on the Planet Home Lending logo. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.